The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. You see this on social media a lot of people saying like, oh, I'm so OCD. And then they post a picture of their like really organized closet. And it's like, yeah, no, that's not OCD. And it really tends to minimize the experience of the people with OCD. And it tends to really kind of glorify it, which I think is really problematic. Hi there. Welcome to Students of Mind, the mental health podcast made by curious minds for curious minds. On this podcast, we the hosts are just like you, eager to learn more about the mind. Here we learn with you and provide you with clear, concise information backed up by real experts about all things mental health. My name is Jade, and in today's episode, we are joined by Lisa Tanner, who will provide a look into what it's like to live with OCD in the world of COVID-19. So our guest today is Lisa Tanner. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist specializing in the treatment of anxiety disorders like OCD, as well as habit disorders. She is the co-founder and clinical director of the Santa Rosa Center for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, where she uses CBT principles to treat a variety of mental illnesses. In addition to working with clients, Lisa provides training for clinicians who want to use CBT in their practice. She's also co-author of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for OCD and Youth, a step-by-step guide, a book that provides mental health professionals with an adaptable evidence-based model that uses cognitive behavioral therapy to treat pediatric OCD. Welcome, Lisa, and thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, So I know I just gave a little bit of your background, but could you tell us more about yourself and some of the work that you do? Yeah, absolutely. So as you said, I am the co-founder of the Santa Rosa Center for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. So a colleague and very good friend of mine, Jennifer Shannon, her and I founded the center, oh gosh, um, a little over 10 years, probably about 12 years ago now with the mission of really wanting to be able to provide really high quality evidence-based therapy to people who are struggling with anxiety disorders in particular. Because I think that's one of the biggest struggles for people is finding therapists, and especially when it comes to OCD, finding therapists who are really knowledgeable and well-trained in the evidence-based therapies like exposure and response prevention therapy. So that's in, you know, the last... 12 years of my practice has, as a therapist, has been the focus of, um, you know, my my work with clients as well as training and supporting other clinicians as well, too. That's great. I have a little bit of experience with CBT. Um, Like, I've received CBT treatment. I think it's a really, it was a good tool to help with some of my anxiety So, yeah, I just wanted to say I think that's so cool that there's that you were able to create that space where you can utilize this amazing tool. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad that you were able to participate and benefit from it. And I think that one of the big things is, is that a lot of times you may hear therapists saying that they use CBT but really what they're doing is they're saying they, they might talk about thoughts or feelings a little bit or use some CBT interventions here or there. And it's a really different experience when you're participating in the therapy with a therapist who is really um, focused and dedicated to that CBT theoretical orientation and approach. You get much better results and outcomes in that way as well, too. So that's why I'm really passionate about training people in the model as well. So... The reason that I wanted to have you on the show is because you are someone who works closely with people who struggle with OCD. And as you know, we're um, in the midst of a global pandemic. And I have had some of my friends who have OCD telling me that it's been really difficult for them right now. And I thought it was important to bring you on to talk about some of the things that people with OCD are struggling with right now. And also just to talk about what OCD is, because I feel like if you don't know someone 
with it or you didn't really go to school for it, then people don't really know much about what it is. So we can start there. Can you kind of like define OCD and talk about some of the symptoms as well? Yeah, absolutely. So OCD is characterized by, first of all, intrusive or unwanted thoughts. And this is what we refer to as the obsession side of OCD. Um, but interestingly enough, that that idea of these intrusive, unwanting thought, unwanted thoughts are not unique to people who have OCD. There's actually been really interesting research that looks at, that sampled um, a large sample of college age college students, undergrad students. And I think it was around 80% of them endorsed having similar kinds of intrusive, unwanted thoughts that people with OCD have. So things like, you know, did I, did I forget to turn off the stove? Did I lock the door? You know, what if, what if I'm secretly a bad person and I, you know, and I don't know it, or I could become a bad person that we all have these thoughts. So they're not unique to OCD, but the difference is, is with people with OCD and people without is that people with OCD, they um, have a catastrophic misinterpretation about those thoughts. They're overvaluing them as to how important those thoughts are. And it really kind of boils down to this idea that because I thought it, it's more likely to be true, right? So because I thought that maybe I didn't turn on the stove, maybe I actually didn't, that that thought in and of itself is reflective of some probability or possibility of something happening. And so it causes really extreme amounts of distress and anxiety for them that then is what drives the compulsive behavior, which is what I think a lot of us are more aware of in kind of a stereotypical representations of OCD, like, you know, TV characters like Monk, where there's lots of like ordering and arranging of things and symmetry and contamination with washing and all of those kinds of things. So the compulsions are an attempt to try to prevent that fear that's engaged in the obsession um, to prevent it from coming true or decreasing the likelihood of it happening. So if I have that thought like, oh my gosh, did I remember to turn off the stove? I might then go and look at the stove and check the knob a few times. What the problem is with OCD though, is that that isn't enough. Like for the rest of us without OCD, we might have that thought, go check the stove and be like, oh yeah, I turned it off and then that's it. We don't think about it again. But the person with OCD, that isn't enough for their brain. They walk away from their stove, the stove and a few minutes later or a few hours later, the brain, their brain automatically pops it in again and says, well, wait a minute, are you sure? You sure the stove is off? What if it's not off? You better go check again. And so then they have to go check again and again and again and again. And you get in this really vicious feedback loop where the more the check they check, the more they try to reassure themselves, the more they need to check and reassure themselves. So it tends to grow and get worse in intensity and frequency the more that they engage in those compulsive behaviors. But those behaviors are pretty alluring because they do work temporarily. I go check the stove and I look at it and I'm like, oh, shoot, okay, I feel better. And, and so it, it offers some temporary relief. But the problem is, is that it feeds the beast, so to speak, in the long term. Okay, so now what can lead to or cause or like trigger OCD symptoms? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, we don't really know for sure um, why people develop OCD um, we are, there's some pretty strong evidence to suggest that there's probably a genetic predisposition. So if you have family members who have OCD or even just another anxiety disorder, there does seem to be a higher likelihood or a higher risk that you will develop OCD as well too. There are also some other times in people's lives, like for women, pregnancy and birth of a child is actually a common time time to have a flare up in OCD or an episode, we think that might have to do with like hormonal changes going on in the body and those kinds of things. Um, but we don't really understand why it is that like one person may
may have these tendencies towards OCD, and we may see these in in people. Sometimes I even, you know, I I have a little bit of those myself, right? But there's never been nothing has ever happened where the where we talk about um, is the the switch getting flipped and it moving into the full blown disordered OCD sort of an idea. We don't really understand why that happens for some people and not others. Okay, that's. That's interesting. So I'm I'm wondering how treatments for OCD are determined if how it it comes up is not known. Like how did the, how did we figure out what works if we don't know why what causes it? Yeah. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I think the reality of it is, is this is a good chunk of mental health <laughs> is yeah. that we don't know. And so what we do is we we have theories and we take guesses. And then you have people who start off with some guesses and then they start testing it out to see, does it work at all, right? And in one of the things that's different about cognitive behavioral therapy than other types of treatment is that we are really focused in what we refer to as evidence-based therapy. And what that that means is what does the research tell us? So rather than stopping with that, what what is my idea about work, what works, and stopping there and just doing that, what we say is we say, okay, let's go research it and see if it actually does work or not. So it was in the early 80s, maybe late 70s too, that practitioners like Edna Foa were some of the first to start wondering about this idea of exposure therapy. Um, prior to that, we really thought of OCD as being untreatable, that it was, you know, the belief was that it wasn't very um, amenable to treatment. It was just a condition that couldn't really be treated. And um, there started to be these ideas around exposure therapy with other types of anxiety disorders that then started being applied to OCD and found that they were really highly effective. And so now there's a pretty large body of research spanning over the last, you know, 20, 30 years of really showing that some strong efficacy for exposure-based therapy for OCD, um, in addition to also some medications. So some of the serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SSRIs, antidepressants like Prozac, Zoloft, those kinds of things um, also have been found to be pretty effective um, for treating OCD as well, too. Um, so talking more about treatment, so you've mentioned exposure therapy, CBT, and then medications. Are there any other forms of treatment that people use to treat OCD? Yeah, I think that, that basically the, the front lines are usually the exposure and response prevention, which is a form of cognitive behavioral therapy, and then the medication. There are also like other offshoots of cognitive behavioral therapy, like in particular acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT therapy, which, which shares a lot of premises and components with cognitive behavioral therapy, but it's, it's its own thing as well, too, that it is actually shown to be highly effective for OCD as well, too. I might, I would argue, now I'm not an ACT therapist, so ACT therapists will argue it a little bit differently. So just that, that disclosure, that disclosure there. But I would argue that a big part of what is making the treatment work with both ACT and CBT is they both have this element of exposure. They approach it differently than each other, but that I feel like is probably the active ingredient where it's basically both of them are helping the individual break that cycle between going to the compulsion to relieve the distress and anxiety from the obsession, because that's the problem. It's actually not this obsession that's the problem, it's the compulsion. The compulsion is the gas that keeps the system going going. So both therapies are really looking at how to interrupt that process. Um, they just come at it from slightly different angles. But ACT also has a lot of efficacy to it as well, too. So when we talk about mental illnesses, often we are able to identify risk factors. So what are some risk factors that could lead to OCD? I think probably the biggest risk, risk factor that we're going to know of is that um, genetic predisposition. So that family member with OCD is, is probably going to be your biggest risk factor 
that we have with OCD. Though it's not like if you don't have any family members, you're safe and you're not going to get OCD because some people still do. They have no family members. And let me preface that. We have no family history that we know of because we really want to stress, you know, your, you know, your grandparents could have easily had OCD, but nobody in the family ever talked about it because when at that time in our history, we just didn't talk about those things. So, you know, I really want to stress you could have no history that you know of and still develop OCD, but that's probably your biggest risk factor. Yeah. Um, while I'm listening to you talk about OCD, it sounds very similar to anxiety, um, or like generalized anxiety disorder. It sounds similar. So I'm wondering when does someone know that they're not just solely dealing with anxiety, they're dealing with OCD or like, what's the thing that distinguishes the two? Yeah, and you're exactly spot on that you're hearing those similarities between generalized anxiety or GAD and OCD because there are a lot of similarities. And some people will argue that they are more similar than maybe we tend to acknowledge or or give credit for. Um, what One of the big differences, though, if you're thinking about it diagnostically, like how to tell the difference between them, and, and let me back up for a minute and just give a quick definition of what generalized anxiety is for listeners who may not know, because it's a little bit of a deceiving name. Um, it makes it sound like, oh, that's just kind of the catch-all, anybody who worries, but it's actually a, a pretty specific um, kind of disorder. And the hallmarks of GAD or generalized anxiety is that it's highly suggestible and very transitory. So it kind of bounces around all over the place. Like with kids, when their parents are calling in and talking about the anxiety, they often tend to describe it like it's the flavor of the month. Like this is what they're afraid of this month, but last month it was something else. And we're pretty sure this is going to like go away eventually, but then there's just always something new. Um, So that's kind of the hallmark characteristic of GAD. But the big difference between GAD and OCD or generalized anxiety is that generalized anxiety tends to be pretty rooted in what we would describe reasonable fear. So it's going to be around things like natural disasters, like kids in living in the, we are in the Northern California, we have lots of earthquakes. So that's mm-hmm. a common fear for kiddos with GAD, right? And we're like, okay, that's, that's understandable. It's just that their fear is a little bit more excessive, right? It might be around things like an adults worrying about losing their job or relationship issues, those kinds of things. So it's a little bit more grounded in what anybody would look at. And they'd say like, well, yeah, that makes sense. You're just kind of blowing it out of proportion. Whereas OCD, by definition, is a little weird and bizarre. So it's we kind of look at it and we're like, really? Like, I guess I can kind of see the original thread on that in terms of like contamination, right? Where it's like, yeah, okay, we all know like none of us want to be touching feces and urine. Like, no, that's gross. But very few of us think about that there could be the particles of urine and feces around us in the environment. Whereas people with OCD with contamination fears, that's exactly what they're doing is it's not, it's not just bathrooms where all the rest of us would associate like, yeah, there's definitely feces in there. They're saying, nope, it's everywhere because it was on my hands. And then I carried it out there and spread it everywhere. Um, There's also the bizarreness around, like I mentioned earlier about like this worrying that maybe I'm secretly a bad person. That's a, a really common subtype of OCD where I'm might have like images or thoughts about like violence or hurting people might pop into my head. And then I worry that, well, maybe because I thought that that means that I really, I secretly am a bad person that secretly, maybe I really like these thoughts or I want to hurt someone else, even though that's not true at all. So that's where it just, it looks a little bit weirder and more bizarre. And then the second piece is the compulsions. So generalized anxiety will ruminate on it, will worry about it a whole lot, but they're not going to be doing like those repetitive behaviors over and over again that we'll see with OCD, like going back and checking 
checking the lock over and over and over again, or asking you over and over and over again, are you sure I'm a good person? Are you sure I'm okay? Um, sort of an idea. So those are the distinctions of how you can tell the difference between the two. Okay. Thank you. That was, that was helpful. Cause I think I've always been a little like confused about what's different about the two and like what makes someone with anxiety not engage in those compulsions, but what makes someone with OCD engage. So that yeah. was helpful. Thank you. And I, yeah. And I was going to say too, the <laughs> other thing is, is recognizing it's important for therapists for us to recognize the difference because the treatment is slightly different because people with generalized anxiety are able to take in um, new information. So they're so like they're able to take in that concept of like probability versus possibility, right? Like, yeah, it, it can happen, but it's not very likely to happen. So you can reassure them, and they'll take it in and be able to shift their thinking. Whereas people with OCD can't. The more you try to reassure them, the more anxious they become because you're really just doing a compulsion. And so that's like that big difference, too. So as you know, there's a lot of misconceptions about mental health as a whole. And we kind of touched on this a little bit. But what are the most common misconceptions that you come across in terms of OCD? Yeah, I think that there's there's two big ones. The first one is that idea of like the different types of OCD. So most people, when they think of OCD, think of contamination and symmetry and exactness, right? So that's like monk, having to have things in a certain way, lined up in a certain order, or washing your hands a lot because you're worried you come into contact with some sort of contaminant. But that's actually just a really small percentage of the overall types of OCD that there are. And so I think that's the biggest misconception misconception so the other types of OCD I had mentioned one already which is one that we refer to is like harm OCD so this is where people will have fears that they have either um, it will intentionally or unintentionally harm someone so for example like one that happens a lot is that somebody's driving in their car and then they might have the thought oh my gosh like did I run over somebody and it, it there doesn't even have to be a bump or a sound or anything. It just all of a sudden the thought pops into their head and they become so preoccupied with it that oftentimes they will have to turn around and go back and drive by to make sure there wasn't anybody laying on the ground. But even then that won't be enough. So maybe they'll go home and they'll look for, read the paper for the next few days to see if there were any reports of hit and runs. Um, so those would be the harm type obsessions. Um, people also have uh, harm obsessions about worrying about harming themselves. So like, what if I lost control and just, you know, stabbed myself with this fork? and they worry that that could happen. There are also sexual obsessions. So worrying that like if I, like let's say I'm a straight person, I don't have any arousal towards um, people of the same sex, but let's say the thought pops into my head and I might worry like, oh no, am I gay? And it's not even in a homophobic way, like I don't want to be gay, but what if I'm, I'm gay and I don't know it? Like how, how, do, what, how do I even figure this out? And so then they get really preoccupied with just needing to know for sure. And that's what's at the crux of OCD is trying to get 100% certainty, which is just impossible. There's also like superstitious OCD, like, you know, I have to do things in a certain way or something bad will happen to my loved ones. So there's all kinds of different types of OCD other than just the contamination and symmetry. Um, that we tend to hear about the most. Yeah, and I think that's very true for me too. Like the OCD I hear most about is that contamination component, which I think is why OCD came up with the topic of COVID-19 because it's a virus and, um, you know, we've been told that we need to wash our hands all the time. Right. Stay away from each other. Right. Uh, We're all operating by OCD rules right now, by the yeah. way. Like we all are a little bit in this mindset. I was talking about that 
that hundred percent certainty. And I, you know, I and, and my family for various different reasons, we adhered to the shelter in place pretty strictly for the first three weeks. And so uh, other than like walking around my neighborhood, cause I'm, I'm very fortunate, um, have some privileges in my favor that I was able to work from home really easily. We shifted our practice into a hundred percent telehealth really easily. So I didn't really leave my house and my immediate neighborhood for three weeks. And finally, after that, like I was leaving my house with my daughter and I'm, we're just out at like getting ice cream or something. And I realized like, I'm like, okay, use the hand sanitizer. Like you touch something, use the hand sanitizer again. Like don't touch your mouth, don't touch your eyes. Right. And what I realized is that I came to this point of an expectation of zero risk. And that's kind of what we're all susceptible right now is this idea that we can actually achieve zero risk, which you can't. We can only moderate risk. So yeah, it's definitely coming up right now because we're all in this like OCD-ish kind of mindset. Yeah. Um, And I didn't want to kind of make the assumption that the people with OCD that are struggling right now are only those who struggle with contamination OCD. And because of that, I just want to ask you, what have you noticed about the effects that the pandemic and like shelter in place has had on people who deal with OCD? Yeah, it's definitely, I think it's in both ways. So like, I actually just got an email from a former client just the other day, and she had commented, she said, you know, it's uh, telling people with OCD to wash their hands regularly is a cruel joke. And she's happens to have contamination fears, right? Because in, in the treatment, they learn about how washing excessively just feeds their OCD. So they're learning how to wash less often. And so now here they're being told to wash more. And it's just really difficult. So definitely the contamination ones, even if it wasn't specific to viruses, it could be other kinds of contamination are going to get flared up just because of that talk about washing and and contamination in general. But what also happens is what we do know is that the more stress somebody is under, the more susceptible they're going to be to their OCD, regardless of what the subtype is. So I tend to think of it kind of like we all have an emotional battery. And if that battery is being drained down by other things, then we don't have the emotional energy that is necessary to be able to fight back against or resist the OCD. So I think just the stress of the pandemic of sheltering in place, being stuck at home, or if you're an essential worker, the stress of going out into the community every day and dealing with other stressed out people or dealing with the stress of just the realization of your own increased risk of exposure, even if you don't have contamination fears, could flare up the other obsession simply because your battery is depleted so much that you don't have the amount of emotional energy that is really necessary to resist OCD. Because it does take a fair amount of emotional energy to resist it. Um, especially in the beginning. Once people get good at it, it it doesn't take as much, but this would be a time where you'd have a flare-up and it would take more energy again to resist. So do you think that social media and just the fact that we're so isolated right now, do you think that those two factors are part of what is making people with OCD more stressed? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that the, you know, even just the stress of, you know, I I love my family dearly, but being stuck in a house with them (laughs) all Mm -hmm. off is hard, right? Like, also, like, I'm like, I don't know that I'd want to be a single piece person either, because then being alone and isolated in your home is stressful in different ways. But that absolutely is it. But there's this quality about social media that, you know, in terms of like misinformation or bad information, or even just, you know, if we're sitting at home and all we have is the social media, it really sets us up for those checking kinds of behaviors, right? So like I saw this myself in the beginning where I was like looking at Facebook over and over and over again, right? Within just a short period of time that eventually I had to be like, okay, Lisa, no, you can't do that anymore. You're allowed to check this one website, um, you know, once a day to look and see where things are at and that's it. But there is this encouragement right now of these like 
repetitive checking behaviors that are very OCD-ish. And so if I'm somebody with OCD and let's say I have harm obsession, so not even related to COVID at all, but I'm engaging in this similar kind of checking behavior, it's going to feel similar to my OCD checking. And then that's going to make it me more susceptible to then moving over and engaging in the checking around my harm obsessions as well too. Um. Yeah, I, I find that with all of the interviews I've done for this podcast, social media always has like both potential positive and negative effects to different mental illnesses. And I know with things like anxiety and depression, social media is really good at helping connect people with each other. But I'm wondering for a person with OCD, what the benefits, if any, are of social media or if it's better to kind of just stay away from it? Um, For somebody with OCD, I mean, I guess the beginning part of the benefits of social media might be to be able to learn about OCD and understand that they have that what's going on for them is actually OCD, especially for those people who have the subtypes that are outside of contamination and symmetry, right? So if they're maybe like on social media of some of the, you know, advocacy organizations, like there's a really wonderful one, the International OC Foundation. So they have like a Facebook page and are on Twitter and those kinds of things. So maybe they read something on there and and they realize like, oh my gosh, that's a description of me. I have OCD. Like that's the helpful part. And there are different like support groups and maybe like Facebook pages or, you know, those kinds of groups where it's a little bit more closed, where they get that support from other people. But outside of that, I I think that social media is really, really problematic for OCD, people with OCD, just because of that compulsive checking kind of quality that is just built into social media. It's part of what makes the system work for everybody is that we're a little bit compulsively drawn to it, right? Um, And then on top of that, there's also this idea, and you see this on social media a lot, like separate from the pandemic, when we weren't in the middle of the pandemic, of people saying like, oh, I'm so OCD. And then they post a picture of their like really organized closet. And it's like, yeah, no, that's not OCD. And, and so it really tends to minimize the experience of the people with OCD and it tends to really kind of glorify it and look at something as like, this is a desirable, um, thing, which I think is really problematic for the people who are suffering because they're like, no, this is not desirable. Like, I don't want this. This is, you know, terrible. This is really distressing and debilitating. There was actually a really awesome TEDx talk by a woman who's the mother of of a woman with OCD that her daughter is an adult now. If you just Google TEDx and starving the monster, it'll come up. And it's a little short one because it's only TEDx. It's like 15 or 20 minutes. And it's really awesome about exactly this this piece and that whole I'm so OCD and how that affects people who actually do have OCD. Okay. And yeah, I'll make sure to put that in the description of this episode so people can go watch it. And I still feel like today I I see people saying that online or just hear people saying it so nonchalantly, um, not even having any idea of how that's affecting someone. Right, absolutely. You talked about how with everything that's going on with the pandemic, it can kind of cause some of these symptoms to flare up or be a trigger for some people. What are some ways to mitigate the effects that the pandemic will have on people with OCD? Like what are ways we can minimize how severe the effects of a trigger are for people who have OCD right now? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the first thing, like if you're thinking about, you know, individuals themselves, so the individual with OCD, I think part of that answer 
you know, really is going to be dependent upon, you know, how much treatment they have already had, how much exposure, like ideas to this, these principles of exposure based therapy, right? But what, and so my answers are going to be really based in that sort of an idea is that the big thing is, is really, I I think when we're talking about contamination is the first thing right now is to look at, okay, what are the recommended guidelines from the CDC, right? So for example, right now, we all know you're supposed to wash your hands frequently. When you wash your hands, it's supposed to be with soap and water and wash for 20 seconds, right? So that's the first thing. And to say, okay, I have to stay within those guidelines because that's the first thing that happens with OCD is it's like, well, if 20 seconds is good, 40 seconds must be even better. And if 40 seconds is even better then four minutes must be great. And if four minutes is great, then 30 minutes must be even better. And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so the idea is, is like, okay, go to a reputable source, find out what I'm supposed to be doing, and then stick to that as much as I can. Don't go beyond or outside of that. Because again, we're remembering that the goal is not zero risk. The goal is manage risk. Um, So I think that that's the first thing. And then the second thing I would say is definitely like limiting exposure if possible. So um, limiting the type, like don't be getting online and reading about things all of the time, you know, trying to find other areas to focus on and like hobbies or talking to friends or those kinds of things rather than just sitting on social media or going online and reading article after article after article about COVID and what's the newest thing that we've learned and everything like that. Coming up again with rules, almost like what I said with myself of, okay, I can check these websites X number of times per week, you know, sort of a thing. And that's all I'm going to do. So those are some good ways to mediate it. And you can do the same things even when, even if it's not contamination fears, you can still do all those similar things just around whatever your obsession type is, is it's about really trying to limit the number of compulsions that you're doing and, and really probably limit your triggers as best as you can right now, since we all know that we're really overstressed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things you said sounded like creating like a safety plan or like writing out or what you'll do if you have the urge to act on a compulsion or how many times you can act on a compulsion. It sounds like something that would be helpful is like having a plan for your week just so you can have like guidelines. Yes. And so you can be intentional, right? So that's the other thing is being really intentional because in the, the, the one thing you definitely want to be trying not to do is making decisions based on your anxiety or distress in the moment, right? So I'm mm-hmm. feel, it feels really bad right now. So, okay, I'm going to go do this compulsion because that's what feeds the beast. That's what feeds OCD. But if you're saying like, okay, I'm going to just be kind of intentional about it this week. This is what I'm going to do. So in that moment, when you start to get anxious, even if you're still doing a compulsion, you're doing it because that's what your plan was, not because, oh, I got so anxious right now. But similarly, I think the other thing is, is that people with OCD, and this is a crux of the treatment, is really being willing to sit with and tolerate distress and anxiety, that you do have to be able to and be willing to feel a certain amount of distress and anxiety. If you're not willing to sit with that and experience that, then your OCD is going to grow and get stronger as a result, because that's what it's all about is trying to zero risk, get rid of the uh, all anxiety, all distress, which is just not possible. Mm -hmm. So when you say, you know, sit with the anxiety, I kind of just want to make sure that people know what that means. So could you explain what you mean by when you say sit with the anxiety? Yeah, absolutely. So like, for example, if you go back to that situation where I was talking about with my daughter, when I went out and like, she's touching everything and I'm like, Oh my gosh, like sanitize your Mm -hmm. hands, blah, blah, blah. Right. At a certain point in time, I had to be like, okay, Lisa, you've chosen to take a risk by going outside. Like you have to just sit with that. And so what it is, is like, I'm watching her. She's eight years old, right? She touches something. And in my head, I think like, okay, that could have the corona virus on it. And so then I just have to sit with that anxiety that like, yep, it could, that is possible. It could. 
And this is where like some of the acceptance and commitment therapy approach might come in is where what they will do is work in a little bit more of my values around this, right? Like, why am I willing to tolerate this risk right now? Well, I'm willing to tolerate this because we've been cooped up in the house for three weeks. She's going crazy. And I really want to just go out and get her an ice cream right? So I'm willing to tolerate that risk in service of having some normalcy for her and just getting this ice cream, right? But I have to be willing to just let that anxiety be there. So at my center, the approach that we take is that I don't need to do any deep breathing. I don't need to do any relaxation or anything like that, especially not for OCD, because those things are likely to just become compulsions again. But instead, I can just let the anxiety be there because we don't need to do anything. Our bodies, our brains already have a built-in mechanism for bringing us back to equilibrium. Our brains don't want to stay in a heightened state of arousal. As soon as that fight-or-flight response, that anxiety response is triggered, our brain is immediately trying to bring us back to a place of homeostasis. And so if we just don't mess with it, if we just let our brain do what it already knows how to do, we'll be able to ride that wave of anxiety out. Now that's a lot harder for people with OCD because it's more intense, but that's what the concept is. When I say like being willing to accept a certain amount of distress or anxiety and sit with it, that's what I mean is just letting it be there and, and acknowledging like, yes, I am. I'm accepting a certain amount of risk here. Thank you for expanding on that. Yeah. Another follow-up question I have is you said something briefly about breathing and how that could potentially lead to more compulsions. Can you expand on that as well? Yeah. So one piece that I, I haven't mentioned, and it keeps popping into my head as I'm talking and I'm like, oh, I need to mention that. And then I start talking about something else and I forget and it pops into my <laughs> head again. And and that is that this idea of, of mental compulsions, right? So we tend to, that's the other misconception about OCD is that compulsions are all behavioral. So like doing something, checking something, washing my hands, arranging something. Thing. But there are also obsessions that we refer to as mental obsessions, which are just thoughts where I might like reassure myself where I might say like, you know, nope, I didn't run anybody over. I would have heard the bump if I ran somebody over, like with that example of thinking I ran somebody over in my car earlier, we would call that a mental compulsion because it's anything that the person does to try to reassure themselves that the fear isn't real, that the fear isn't gonna, going to come true. And on the surface, that sounds like, why would that be problematic, right? We go back to GAD, to GAD, and that's exactly what we're going to do with that person. We're going to say, well, did you hear a bump? Did you hear a scream? Did you hear anything? Was there any reason to think you ran somebody over? Well, no. Okay, so then what does that tell you about the likelihood that you ran somebody over? Oh, well, I guess I probably didn't, right? But with OCD, it isn't going to work that way. We're going to do all those things. And maybe in the moment, they'll say, okay, and they'll be reassured. But then a few minutes later, or a few hours later, their OCD brain is going to say, well, but what about this? Well, but how do you know? right? Or even more so in the moment when I'm explaining all those things to them, all they're going to do is they're going to say, well, but, well, but, and there's always going to be an argument for it, right? So the deep breathing, relaxation exercises, I don't want to say that they're completely bad because they're not. And it's not that they're going to automatically become a compulsion. It's just that there's the risk for it, right? Because if I'm doing those things for the purpose of making my anxiety go away, because that's also a big part of the distress for people with OCD is that if I don't do the compulsion, then not only will the feared thing happen, my daughter will get COVID, but I will also, I just won't be able to stop thinking about it and I'll stay really anxious. So if I'm doing deep breathing with this idea of trying to relax myself and make the anxiety go away, well, it really has the risk of functioning similarly to a compulsion again, where then I start to believe that, oh, this is the only way I can make the anxiety go away. And anytime that has to happen, I have to be able to do my deep breathing. And so then it just becomes in that same feedback loop of like, oh, a little bit of anxiety, now I have to deep breathe. Oh, a little bit of anxiety, now I have to deep breathe. Whereas the reality of it is, is we don't. We can just let our body go through that natural restabilizing sort of an idea. So it's not an automatic, it's just that they run the risk. It all depends on how the person is using it. Okay. That's interesting. So let's kind of shift back yeah. to 
um, how OCD is relating to the pandemic. And we talked a little bit about ways to mitigate the effects that the pandemic and COVID could Mm. potentially have on OCD. And you talked about what people who are struggling could do for themselves. But what could people who are supporting those who are struggling do to help mitigate those effects? Absolutely. So this is this is such a, a tricky one, right? Because as the loved ones of people with OCD, you're even you are super duper susceptible to getting sucked into compulsions with the person, right? Because just like I was talking about all those things of where we're reassuring and being really nurturing and like, no, don't worry, that's not going to happen. Like loved ones are really susceptible to getting into those conversations of trying to convince the person that their fear is not accurate. So I think the first thing is to resist the urges to do that. One, because it just isn't helpful. You're going to be engaging in compulsions. And even if you are, even if they are able to like take it in and it calms them down in the moment, remember that's temporary. You're just making the OCD worse in the long run. And if it's in that place where the person is more entrenched and they are doing that constant, well, but, well, but, well, but, all it does is it ends up making the loved one really frustrated, the sufferer with OCD kind of mad as well too, and now you guys are in a fight. So instead, what I think is better to do is just to empathize with them, right? Just to be able to say like, you know, I'm really sorry. Like, it sounds like you're having such a rough day with your OCD right now. Like, I'm really sorry. Just empathizing with that. Even if what they're saying seems so illogical to you, resist the urge, just empathize. The second thing is then, and this is true with during COVID, but also outside is really trying hard not to engage in compulsions that you really know are overtly compulsions. So let's say during COVID, it's, let's say it's a younger person, right? So a person that's not considered a high risk age group, you know, let's say 18 to 30 or 45 in there, right? And that person is, um, they're not wanting to go to the grocery store at all, right? If this was my 65 year old or 75 year old or 85 year old grandparent, okay, yeah, I'm going to go to the grocery store for them maybe, right? Because they're a higher risk category. I'm trying to provide them with a little bit more protection. But if this is my family member where it's like, yeah, no, going to the grocery store is probably okay with you. Like wear your mask, do all of those things that I think that's the thing to do is to really kind of check in and see like, is that really something that you're wanting to do, knowing that you're engaging in in a compulsion with them? And we could do a similar kind of thing as we talked about before for the individual, whereas we could say, all right, I'm going to make a plan. And we can say, I'll go to the grocery store for you X number of times a week, but no more than that. So then the individual has to make that choice for themselves, right? They're going to like, they either have to stretch out whatever I got them at the grocery store, or it's going to, the leverage is going to be there that then they have to face that fear and take that reasonable risk and go ahead and go to the grocery store on their own. Right. But again, I set that intention ahead of time so that then me as the loved one, because we're just as susceptible to reasoning around our emotions as the individuals are. Right. Because when our family member is just in tears and so distressed or our friend is like, what kind of awful person am I to not go to the grocery store for them? Like, shouldn't I do this? But if we really look at how it's just perpetuating the problem for them, we can start to understand how the more loving act is to support them to resist. Okay, and then continuing with support, do you have any resources that would be helpful for people with OCD right now? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the best resource to start off with is the um, OC Foundation that I mentioned earlier. Their website is iocdf.org. They're also on Facebook and Twitter and all of those things. Unfortunately, I don't know their handles. I only know the website, but we can find them on there. They're a really great resource because they're going to have the support groups, virtual support groups. They're going to have, when we talked about get that reliable quality information, like all of that information is going to be on their site. They also 
have like a database where you can look for therapists who are really well trained in OCD and know how to treat it. And, and this is one of those things when thinking about, you know, how has the pandemic affected people with OCD? And we tend to think of in the negative ways. Well, there's actually one positive way, a positive effect that it's had, which sounds a little bit bizarre to say. But one of the positives is, is that it has forced the mental health community into telehealth offering telehealth, getting good at telehealth, and expanding telehealth resources. And so as a result now, that thing where we were talking about before, that it's really hard to access services, well, now you are not limited to somebody in your geographical area. You're limited to somebody within your state because most states won't let therapists, like I can't treat somebody who is not residing in California because I am only licensed in California. But I could see somebody who's down in LA, even though I'm up in Northern California right now, because we're not limited by that physical demographic of them being close enough to drive to me anymore. And so that's another great thing is that, you know, all of a sudden now support and therapy might be way more accessible to people than it was before the pandemic. And the OC Foundation is a great way to be able to find um, those resources. Okay, great. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, what are some ways that we and our audience can stay up to date with the work that you and your CBT organization is doing? Yeah, absolutely. So we have our website, which is the srcbt.org. We're also on Facebook at at srcbt. And then we have been doing um, some stuff on YouTube. I've been working on putting some videos up on our YouTube channel. At the beginning of the pandemic, I was really like gung-ho about this. I'm like, okay, there is a little bit more time. I can record these videos now. And then, um, then like things got exacerbated way bigger. And so that's fallen off a little. So there's a little less on our YouTube channel, but our Facebook page, we do tend to post a lot of resources and information about things that we're doing. You know, we do have an OCD group that we're offering online and we have blogs on our website that do include a lot of information about OCD, the treatment and just resources and those kinds of things. So I'd say our Facebook page and the website are the best way to stay in connection with us. Great. Thank you so much for doing this with me today. And I'm I'm really excited about everything we talked about. I know I learned some new stuff today, so I'm pretty sure the audience will too. Um, and yeah, just thank you again for being here and taking the time to talk to me about this. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It is one of my favorite things to talk about. So I'm, I'm glad that, that we were able to do this. Thank you for listening to this episode of Students of Mind. Thank you again to Litsa for taking the time to be on the show. I really enjoyed our conversation and I learned a lot as well. If you want to learn more about the San Rosa Center for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, which is where Litsa provides her services, visit srcbt.org. You can also follow the center on social media which all will be linked in the description of this episode, along with the link to the International OCD Foundation website for more info on obsessive compulsive disorder. Please remember to share, subscribe, and leave a review for this podcast. Otherwise, we will see you next episode. I'm Liz Winter and I have been a medium and a spiritual development teacher for over 30 years. On my podcast, All Aboard the Mediumship, I want to share the message with you that there is a wealth of love and comfort available to you from the spirit world. 
On my podcast, you can experience this comfort and peace for yourself through gentle guided meditations and helpful messages. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you never miss an episode. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.